When it comes to our founding fathers, there are a few legends everybody knows. George Washington said, I cannot tell a lie, I chopped down the cherry tree. Abraham Lincoln uh, was born in a log cabin. And there's James Madison fleeing the White House. The British burned the White House, and so he had to get out. But how many of those legends really happened? Washington's cherry tree falls, Lincoln's log cabin, true. And did James Madison really abandon the White House? He fled because there was a very large army coming his way, and it would have been senseless to wait around uh, simply to get captured. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, stories about our fourth president, James Madison. But first, we'll take a look at another founding father, Patrick Henry. Today, Henry is known primarily for one speech, give me liberty or give me death. But historian John Ragosta says that in early America, Henry was known for much more, and he was wildly popular. John, you've written a lot on Jefferson and religious liberties. Now you're working on a book about Patrick Henry. Was he really elected five times governor of Virginia? Yes, he was the first governor of Virginia. He was elected three times in a row, which was the limit. In retirement, he was often approached and said, we want to make you governor. And he'd say, no, no, I'm, I'm retired. Uh, it's time for other people to do this. Was he really that popular? He was enormously popular. No man in Virginia, with the perhaps the exception of George Washington, was more popular than Henry. Henry was more popular than Thomas Jefferson in terms of the people, in terms of the legislature. And even George Washington, Washington was this character standing on a hill on his white horse. Henry was really understood as a man of the people. Everybody liked Patrick Henry. He knows how to tell a story. He's one of the greatest trial lawyers that ever lived. So he could relate to people. Uh, he worked as a farmer. He worked in a store. He worked in a tavern for a while for his father-in-law. And he liked people. Washington is always a little removed. He's a little distant. There's a great story of Governor Morris hugging Washington in a public meeting on a bet. And he wins the bet but says, I'll never do that again um, <laughs> because you don't hug Washington. Um, right. Henry is right in the crowd, backslapping, having a drink, uh, enjoying people. Any instances of early success as an attorney? Well, his first big case is the Parsons cause that originated in the fact that Virginians paid a tax to pay the Anglican ministers. You have a state religion. The Anglican ministers are paid through taxes. And there had been a law which effectively lowered their salary. So a lawsuit is brought by an Anglican minister, Minister Morey, saying, you need to pay me what I'm owed under the old law because the king said the new law is invalid. And so Henry is brought in really at the last minute to defend the taxpayers against this lawsuit. And it's clear the lawsuit's valid. But Henry, in his first famous public speech, gives this speech in which he says, look, when the king no longer is doing things that are benefiting the people but starts to impair the people's interests, then he becomes a tyrant. This is treason. He's calling the king a tyrant. And then he also lights into the Parsons. And he says, instead of feeding the hungry and clothing the naked, these rapacious harpies would, were their powers equal to their will, snatch from the hearth of the honest parishioner his last hoe cake, from the widow and her orphan child their last milk cow. This got people going. He's, he's speaking to a jury of people who are being taxed to pay the minister and saying, you know, these ministers are out, they're, they're in it for the money. 
And, and so what happens in the Parsons case, he loses because he was going to lose. But they give Minister Maury one penny in damages. Now, not long after that, he goes into the House of Burgesses. He's elected as a delegate. He's elected as a delegate uh, in 1765, really as a result of the Parsons case. It's in the House of Burgesses that he gives another one of his most famous speeches, the Stamp Act. This is the no taxation without representation argument. The British have won the French and Indian War. They're enormously in debt, and they are going to tax the Americans. And so Henry is, he's a junior member, and he's advocating a very strong response to the king. And Henry stands up and says, Caesar had his Brutus, Charles I had his Cromwell, and George III... What he's saying is Caesar is assassinated by Brutus, Charles I has his head chopped off by the Cromwellians, and George III, the implication is, will be killed if he continues along this line. And, and people scream treason, treason, and Henry very quickly says, may learn from their example, if this be treason, make the most of it. Henry apparently spoke so persuasively, so forcefully that people would say 20 or 30 years later, I remember it like it was yesterday. I remember every word that man spoke. Jefferson says that when Henry would speak, uh, he couldn't do anything else, that he, was, uh, he, he would say when other people were speaking, I'd be reading a book or writing a letter. When Henry started to speak, everything stopped. The next of the great speeches that Henry is known for is probably the greatest of them all. Absolutely. The 1775 speech, the give me liberty or give me death speech is what people remember. You have the Boston Tea Party in December of 1773, and redcoats are now all over Boston. And the question is, will the rest of the colonies support Massachusetts? Henry was out in front and was seeing what was happening. He says, we must fight. This is uh, an important statement because the question people were debating, they thought, was whether we were going to send flour and fish and beef to Boston because the town has been blockaded by the British Navy. And Henry says, we must fight. He said, if England wanted to negotiate, if they wanted to be reasonable, you don't send troops. You don't blockade Boston. And then he's responding to the moderates because the moderates are saying— peace, peace. Men cry peace. And he says, there is no peace. The war is actually begun. The next gale that sweeps from the north will bring to our ears the clash of resounding arms. Our brethren are already in the field. Why stand we here idle? What is it that gentlemen wish? What would they have? Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be bought at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but as for me give me liberty or give me death. Now, he does this extremely dramatically when he's saying, give me liberty or give me death. He holds up an ivory letter opener above his chest and he says, give me liberty or give me death. And he plunges it seemingly into his chest below his arm and, and seems to collapse. Absolute silence in St. John's Church. The church is packed. The windows have been opened to hear Henry's speech. People are standing outside, five, six deep at the windows. One man says, I want to be buried on this spot because this is the most important thing I've ever heard in my life. And he is. He's later brought back and buried at that window in St. John's Church. What was the consequence of that speech? Did that change minds? Did people mount horses and draw swords? Well, absolutely. George Washington reportedly says that he's ready to march to Boston with a thousand men at his own expense. 
So during this time, how was Patrick Henry earning a living and supporting a family? Henry is a lawyer. He's a practicing lawyer. Uh, He has six children from his first wife, who he had married at a very young age. Hadn't she gone insane? She, She goes insane. And she is basically kept in the basement of the home where Henry is living in Scotchtown in Hanover County, um, sometimes in a straitjacket, and she finally dies. Did he remarry soon? Not immediately. He ends up remarrying a woman, uh, Dorothea Dandridge. Today we would say she was a trophy wife. When Thomas Jefferson and Patrick Henry first met at a Christmas party at the home of Nathaniel Dandridge, who was a local uh, plantation owner, a wealthy man, they like each other immediately. They both play the fiddle, and reportedly they fiddle together for the Christmas party. If if one can imagine being at a Christmas party with Thomas Jefferson and Patrick Henry playing the fiddle, somewhere in the corner is four-year-old Dorothea Dandridge who becomes Patrick Henry's second wife a number of years later. She has 11 children by Patrick Henry, so he has 17 children from his two wives. Oh, my gosh. So let's go back to his speech-making, the next tremendous speech that is well-remembered after Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death is what? Well, it occurs in the Virginia Ratification Convention in 1788. It's often referred to as the Thunder Speech. We had won the American Revolution, but we're operating under the Articles of Confederation, and the government isn't working very well. So we get the Constitution. We now love the Constitution, but at the time it was highly controversial. And Patrick Henry was very concerned about creating this powerful national government. Uh, And he came out and said that, that this is a mistake. We ought to leave powers with the states. This is the beginning of the states' rights interests. Let let, let me give you a part of what he was saying. Uh, If we admit this consolidated government, the U.S. Constitution, if we create a new strong national government, it will be because we like a great splendid one. Some way or other, we must be a great and mighty empire. We must have an army and a navy and a number of things. When the American spirit was in its youth, the language of America was different. Liberty, sir, was then the primary object. Now, again, this is prescient. He's saying that you're going to create a powerful national government. It will become the the source of an empire. It will become a great and powerful nation. But that's not why we had the revolution. The reason we had the revolution was personal liberty. Why is it called the Thunder Speech? Well, the the speeches have been going on for days. uh, And he's arguing with James Madison, who, by the way, is not a very impressive speaker, speaks very softly, very quietly. It's coming down to the last minute. And Virginia is needed. If Virginia refuses to ratify the Constitution, you can't have a country. It's the largest state in the Union, both geographically and by population and by economy. You have to have Virginia. It's coming down to the last moment. Well, Henry is giving this speech. And one of these wonderful Virginia summer afternoon thunderstorms breaks out. And the lightning is flashing and the thunder is going. And people say that that Henry seems to be calling down the angels of heaven himself to to rail against this uh, abomination against American liberty. Uh, (laughs) This is is the kind of power that people equate with Patrick Henry's speeches. And so when he finishes the speech, the room is black from the storms. The lightning is going off. Reportedly, everybody flees the building, runs from the building. He has the last word. He has the last word. But he loses the vote. The Constitution, of course, is ratified. And importantly, something that people also forget, Henry has become a great icon of the modern Tea Party movement because of states' rights. They forget when he loses the vote. There is an effort by some of the anti-federalists to oppose the Constitution. And Henry stands up and says, no, 
no, we lost. This is this is what happens in a republic. This is what happens in a democracy. And it is our duty to abide by the laws. It is our duty to go home and, and to be honest, quiet citizens. Uh, we didn't want this national government, but it is now our national government. John Ragasta's forthcoming book on Patrick Henry is tentatively titled Patrick Henry, A Loyal Opposition. He's a fellow at Virginia Humanities and an historian at the Robert H. Smith International Center for Jefferson Studies at Monticello. Coming up next, the minister who inspired Patrick Henry. Before Patrick Henry died, he credited a Presbyterian minister named Samuel Davies with, quote, teaching me what an orator should be. Former With Good Reason producer Kelly Libby visited the place where Davies preached rousing sermons to a congregation of colonists that included a young Patrick Henry. What you notice right away about Pole Green Church is that it doesn't have walls or a roof. It's a collection of white beams that make it more of a skeleton of a church. I went to Pole Green in rural Virginia for an annual Easter sunrise service. It was a gathering of local Presbyterians, roughly 50 or so people, who brought their own folding lawn chairs and worshipped as the sun rose above the trees. There was once a real colonial meeting house here, one with walls and a roof, and a preacher named Samuel Davies. In 1747, Davies came here from Pennsylvania and became the first non-Anglican minister to be licensed to preach in Virginia. This was a big deal because at the time, itinerant preachers of non-Anglican faith were being jailed or fined for meeting without state approval. Chris Peace is the executive director of the historic Pole Green Church Foundation, which runs the church and teaches visitors about Davies and religious freedom in America. Peace says not only was Davies anti-establishment, he was one of the greatest orators in the colonies. Samuel Davies' last sermon here, um, records reflect that there were multitudes, that there were four or 5,000 people gathered in the grove, uh, in the trees, not being able to fit in the meeting house to come hear him and his departing words uh, to their community. One of the members of his congregation was a young Patrick Henry, who worshipped at Pole Green with his mother, and who became one of our nation's most important figures. Henry once credited Davies with teaching him what an orator should be. And so we know Patrick Henry is the voice of the revolution, the order of uh, liberty, um, and to be a great orator in his own right, uh, to give recognition to Samuel Davies says a lot about Samuel Davies. Today, the legacy of Davies can be felt at Pole Green, as those who worship here do so freely. For With Good Reason, I'm Kelly Libby.
Not too far from the Paul Green Church is Montpelier, the Grand Virginia State of James Madison. Madison is remembered as a key architect of the Constitution, father of the Bill of Rights, but his presidency is often overlooked. Andrew Burstein, co-author of Madison and Jefferson and an historian at Louisiana State University, says Madison's time as chief executive should be remembered. Andrew, the story is told that Madison fled when the British burned the White House and the Capitol building. Is that true? He fled because there was a very large army coming his way, and it would have been senseless to wait around uh, simply to get captured when he could go and conduct reconnaissance on his own, which he did, and made every effort to hold the government together. Now, the War of 1812 broke out on his watch. Did he declare war on the British? Congress declares war according to the Constitution, and in June of 1812, Congress did declare war. But President Madison himself was strongly in favor of getting tough with the British. He didn't shy from it. Outside the War of 1812, how was Madison received and perceived as a president? Was he successful? Well, this is one of the very interesting things about James Madison. He's generally thought of as the cerebral founder, the constitutional thinker, and his presidency is overlooked. He came into the presidency with few people thinking he was going to be great. He was Jefferson's man. He wasn't his own man. But at the end of the War of 1812, America's economy was rebounding. And Madison went down in his own generation, in his own time, as far more popular than he was when he came into the presidency. A man who was honest, a man who was direct, a man who presided over a very trying, very difficult times and saw America through it. He didn't have to be a militarist to do this, but he had the right combination of human attributes and political sensitivity. For the remainder of his life, the younger generation came to him for advice, came to him for an explanation of what exactly did this Constitution mean? What was your intention uh, when you did this or that? So he became an elder statesman and beloved in his time. This is another one of those facts that few Americans learn because Madison doesn't have a great monument to him. He's not carved into stone in South Dakota. It's thought that his career effectively ended at the end of the Constitutional Convention or with the Federalist Papers. So who was he? Where did he come from? He was raised on a slave plantation in Virginia, just as Jefferson was, a few years younger than Jefferson. How did he arrive on the political landscape? Yes, he was born in the same central Virginia landscape that Jefferson, eight years his elder, was. And they moved in similar circles as young, up-and-coming, eldest sons of Virginia planter aristocracy. But what made Madison different was that he did not take over his father's estate. His father had a long life. And the fact that he didn't have to run the plantation, Jefferson did because his father died when he was 14 years old. Madison spent all his time with books. His father funded him, sent him to Philadelphia. 
he really didn't have those day-to-day concerns that others did. And yet, one of the oddest things about Madison is that this great constitutional thinker never stepped foot in a courtroom to try a case. He was not a lawyer. And his greatest constitutional thinking was that which he gleaned from books, not from experience arguing cases. Madison was, in effect, a professional politician from the time he turned 21. And so was he a great mind or a lucky guy who was not made to work and therefore could read a lot? Uh, Yeah, maybe he was a lucky guy, but he was definitely a great mind. When you read Madison, you don't think of grandiose pronouncements. You don't think of how precious life is. Jefferson tugs at the heartstrings. Madison is all about getting stuff done. And that's why he was always put into positions of uh, leadership. He was the go-to guy at the Constitutional Convention. He was George Washington's closest aide in the months leading to and directly after Uh, Washington's inauguration as president in 1789. And Madison both wrote George Washington's first inaugural address and, as the leader in the House of Representatives, wrote the letter of gratitude from Congress to Washington, praising him for his eloquent inaugural address that he himself had written. He was, in fact, extremely suspicious of local government, of state legislators, of demagogues who rose and convinced the people. The silver-tongued Patrick Henry was his perfect example of the demagogue you should watch out for, whose ideas might be bad, flawed. He believed that too much democracy meant there'd be people voting who were ignorant of the issues and who would listen to a demagogue to a politician promising something who sounded good and maybe plied them with drink and then would get into office and not represent the best interests of the people or the common good. And so Madison believed that the United States Senate should have a veto power over state legislation so that if if some dummy in the state legislature uh, introduced a bill that passed that the smarter people in the U.S. Senate thought was either unconstitutional or just, you know, a bad idea. They could just nix it. So Madison wanted the best and the brightest to, in effect, lord over those uh, that might have been politically powerful at the local level, but were dangerous to the health and well-being of the republic. Remind me of the nature of the friendship and the collaboration politically of Jefferson and Madison. Sometimes Madison the Younger had to contend with Jefferson the more socially flamboyant and curtail some of his excesses. Jefferson was frequently attacked in the newspapers for being an airy philosopher, for being a man with a very large library, but uh, uh, impractical solutions to real-life problems. That's only partially true. Jefferson was very practical-minded, but he did allow for flights of fancy. And Madison's role very often was to calm down Jefferson when he expressed this sort of passionate attachment 
to what he considered to be a, a grand, humane solution to a problem. And Madison understood the realpolitik and said, uh, uh, Mr. Jefferson, I, I just don't think this is practical. When Jefferson was president and Madison's secretary of state, I think you could call it a co-presidency because there was nary an executive action taken where Jefferson did not run it by Madison. Jefferson was always partial to his Virginia political allies and Madison above all of those. I've read more and heard more recently about Jefferson's conflicting views and public statements about slavery. What did Madison think of slavery during this time? Madison was, at the end of his life, the president of the American Colonization Society which was considered at the time a philanthropic organization, liberal Southern slaveholders. It sounds like a contradiction in terms to us. The colonizers believed that white and black could not live together and that eventually some sort of a violent mass confrontation would occur. And so the safest bet was to remove them from white society. Texas was brought up as a possibility at that time. Latin America, the island of Cuba, or Haiti. So Madison was a colonizationist. On the other hand, he had no problem perceiving African Americans as potentially successful on the land as any white man. He and Jefferson took a trip together to upstate New York and they came upon a black farmer. And Madison wrote about how impressed he was with the skill and the knowledge uh, that this man brought to farming. Jefferson was far less open-minded. He still thought of a freed slave as Mr. So-and-so's man, where Madison could have that same freed slave at his dinner table and treat him as an equal. Did he free his slaves on his deathbed? No, he did not. And so before we go lionizing Madison, seeing him as ahead of his time, we must recognize that he was very much a man of his time. He may have been able to foresee a more socially just America, but he wasn't about to go up against the majority, the property holders, his fellow Virginians, those who elected him. So what do you think we should really understand about Madison's most important contributions to the political system in America? Madison was instrumental in creating what we call the cabinet, the president's cabinet. It's not in the Constitution that there should be a cabinet. That was a Madisonian innovation. The second thing is that in the 1790s, some of the nastiest mudslinging politics the country had ever seen took place. The first two competing political parties were at each other's throats. Madison was the leader of the first opposition party. He showed himself to be politically fearless. So Madison in effect, is the father, not so much of the Constitution, but of the Democratic Party. Andrew Burstein, thank you for sharing your insights on this with me on With Good Reason. My pleasure to be with you. 
Andrew Burstein is an historian at Louisiana State University. His latest book is The Problem of Democracy, The President's Atoms Confront the Cult of Personality. Support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients, uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monacan Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Maya Neer and Cassandra Deering are our interns. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.